For a change, Vanessa and I are on the same level of tired, but mm. but for good reasons because we are in Paris, and and although we are technically on holiday, we are not really feeling it yet mm-hmm. because we are dutifully here to deliver you an episode of Uncertain Things. I mean, speak for yourself. I've been I've been in a holiday vibes until until you came into the hotel lobby frenzied saying we haven't released an Uncertain Things episode, and I was like, ah, c'est vrai. <laughs> <laughs> I brought anxiety with me from New York. Yes. I put down my beret and my uh, café au lait. No, I'm kidding. I, I'm just saying stupid French things because it makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> She's uh, savoring the moment. Yes. <laughs> but yes, we have we have just landed um, and or disembarked in in Paris and realizing that we have not yet released this episode, we are here recording this intro as professionally as possible on my phone. <laughs> Uh, but there is not much to set up because everything will be introduced in the interview itself. This is a return visit by uh, fan favorite Peter Turchin. Yes, Peter Turchin, who you may remember is the project leader at the Complexity Science Hub in Vienna and also a research associate at the University of Oxford, where we just were, actually, Adam. We just got on the train from Oxford to London to London to Paris. Um, and he has a new book out, which is why he graced us with his presence so, so soon after his previous uh, appearance. And that book, which everyone should get because it's really, really good read, is End Times, Elites, Counter-Elites, and the Path of Political Disintegration. So we'll just recommend that if you haven't already, do listen to our first interview with Mr. Turchin because it sets up much of what we're talking about here. And by the end of it, we realize we'll need to have him on again. So this is session two. We might have a session three yet. So there's there's more collapse to come. There's more collapse to come. Yes. To remind you, he's he's the creator of Cloud Dynamics, the attempt to use social sciences in 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 ways to extrapolate the future and, and make predictions more like the uh, quote unquote real sciences. And we talk about the methodology in the first episode. And here we discuss his prediction that we are at the precipice of societal collapse and we discuss this what what could be done um, how bad things really are and whether he's more uh, Harry Seldon or uh, Leto the uh, second Emperor of Dune so stick along let us know what you think and uh, share us with your ami and your enemy <laughs> That was that was that was a step t- breach too far for me. Um, and uh, let us know if you prefer us to always have the intros on voice memos because clearly that's where our our talents really shine. Uh, I, we hope you enjoy um, Peter Turchin. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Peter, for agreeing to come back. Only a few months after we talked to you last time, we had such a good time last time. So, so grateful that you agreed to come back now that the book is out. Congrats. It's my pleasure and thank you. Is the book officially out? Yes, it's out as of the day before yesterday. Excellent. So to briefly recap our last conversation, when we talked last time, we we kind of got very nerdy into the methodology, all the ways that you were trying to 
collect the data, catalog the data, and essentially quantify something, uh, uh, subject matter history, which a lot of historians have found to be unquantifiable in the past. Um, And all of this allowed you to generate the predictions that you did. And then we also spent a fair amount of time talking about the drivers of social unrest and especially elite overproduction. We kind of dug deep into that subject matter. So we were hoping for this conversation to kind of dwell a bit more now that we have those, you know, fundamentals kind of set from the previous conversation. For this one, we're hoping to diagnose the present moment and understand the potential pathways of the future that we could be headed down, uh, if that sounds okay with you. Sounds good. Great. So let's start with where we are today. You know, when you think about (laughs) where our society is at, what are the potential pathways that you see us heading towards? What are what are the scenarios that could that could be in our future? We should also say that us is being very American-centric at this. Sure. At, at least at this starting point, we are going to expand, but especially in the United States. Where are we in in this crumbling empire of ours? Okay, let's step back first and do a very quick recap of what we talked about last time. Previously on. Right. Uh, so complex human societies, which have been around uh, about 5,000 years, they can experience periods of internal peace and stability for a while, maybe a century or so. But then inevitably, at least in the past, they get into end times, periods of heightened social unrest and political disintegration. So the big question that my book uh, tries to answer is why. Examples, by the way, include things like French and Russian Revolution, American Civil War, and we can talk about other examples we can go beyond the Western world. So why is, as we talked about, a common uh, theme in pre-crisis times is elite overproduction. And what is elite overproduction? First of all, the elites are simply the small proportion of the population who concentrate social power in their hands. So this is the proverbial 1% in America, the Mandarin class in imperial China, military nobility in medieval France, if you go further back into the past. So the key question is, how are elites reproduced and recruited? And uh, here we make a note that there are always more uh, elite wannabes, elite aspirants, uh, than power positions. And some competition is good and healthy, but excessive competition, when there are three, four, five times as many, that leads to serious problems. So in the book, I uh, illustrate this with a game similar to musical chairs, but except uh, instead of taking chairs away in each round, you keep adding players. So at first you have you know, 15 players for, for 10 chairs and 20, 30, 40. You can imagine the chaos that is going to ensue, especially as some players will, st- will want to break the rules because they can see right. they're not getting ahead uh, in this game. Right. You mentioned in the book that the, the epidemic of cheating is kind of a, an extension of the the competitive n- nature of too many folks trying to get into too few prestigious positions. Exactly. So this is where the game, the- game theory fails, because in the game theory, uh, players, they cannot break rules. But in real life, humans break rules all the time. And so I think we discussed how we got to this situation in the United States, which became very clear by 2016, when there were 17 major candidates in the presidential 
primaries uh, on the Republican side. And uh, one of them started breaking rules and did it very effectively. Others tried to emulate Trump, but it uh, didn't help them as much. And then uh, eventually Trump uh, won. So since then, this uh, rule breaking has been happening on both sides. And so today, for example, we have just uh, heard that uh, former President Trump has been um, arrested, essentially, for, uh, for uh, well, it doesn't matter what the crimes are, but the point is that both parties are now using lawfare against each other. So it's very likely that there would be some kind of a, a legal movement against uh, President Joe Biden also. So I think this is actually the first time uh, in history, uh, American history, when we will see both candidates who have the best shot being uh, essentially under very serious legal mm, proceedings. I do want to pause on this point because it is topical with the arraignment of Trump and the very likely reality of Republican House starting proceedings against Biden at some point. You see that as a form of cheating or is the fact that the, well, the initial rise of a character like Trump who shows nothing but disdain to the system as a whole in fact, El was elevated to that position for his disdain for the system as a whole, and in that sense embodies the taste for cheating, cheating because the system is failed and corrupt. As the do you see that as the as the symptom of what of our decline, the the crumbling of legitimacy, or in itself as as kind of elite overproduction because competition for those sought out power positions is is so tight that everybody understands that the only way to get ahead is to to push against the constraining rules of the system and cheat well uh, first of all uh, cheating maybe is a strong word so let's say breaking rules and you can break rules to a different degree that's one point. Second point is that as you know uh, and i make this point very strong in the book i take a completely non-partisan uh, approach so I criticize equally the Republicans and the Democrats. And so I see that both uh, sides of the aisle, so to speak, the, the methods that they are using are um, becoming more and more extreme on both sides. And they are the exogenous to the system. They're not playing within the traditional rules of the democratic process as established in the United States for the past 200 years. Exactly. That's exactly. They're getting, they're getting outside of the rules on both, uh, from both sides. And that's what I see is uh, the breaking down of the social norms that uh, govern our, uh, you know, democratic um, uh, uh, governance, essentially. So our next step is understanding where we are today. Uh, as, as as Americans is in the American system, right? Where do you see this shift starting? Where do you see this crumbling starting to 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 occur to the point where we now have two parties, the two institutions, if you can call them that, that traditionally hold the seats of power, playing outside of the the context and and the rules that have brought them to that position and in fact working actively to undermine the system as it is 
Yes, I see this uh, is uh, starting to happen during the 20 teens and become obvious in 2016. Remember that uh, neither Republican Party nor Democratic Party are monolithic at this point or have been for the last six, seven years. Uh, Republicans are divided between pro-Trumpian and more traditional Republican factions. But in the Democratic country, we have more uh, left-leaning members, uh, such as Bernie Sanders, and more traditional uh, Democrats. And I argue in the book that uh, at this point, the mainstream Democratic Party has abandoned its roots as a worker party, which it was during the New Deal, and it is now uh, the party of the ruling class. And left-wing populists like Sanders are not really terribly acceptable to the ruling class, no more than right-wing populists, such as Trump. And so, as you know, during 2016 uh, elections, there were certain moves taken by the party establishment that uh, some argue actually prevented Bernie Sanders from getting the nomination. So the point I'm making is that by uh, 2016, uh, the uh, elite of our production has reached the point where we see um, not only the breaking the rules between the two major parties, but also the parties fragmenting. It's sort of like 1850s. Think about the road to uh, the American Civil War. During the 1850s, the two-party system broke down completely. At some point, you had you know do- a dozen of uh, parties, you know, no nothings and. Uh, And, of course, Republicans were one of those new uh, parties. So this fragmentation of the political landscape we see now where within each of the parties there is as much animosity as between parties. That is one of the uh, signs. Right, and you can see that also to listeners who might not be as plumping or care that much about politics. You can see that even right now as uh, just a few weeks ago, Kevin McCarthy was trying to pass his uh, 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 debt ceiling deal, which was, you know, arguably necessary to prevent um, fiscal collapse for the United States. He he barely eked it out, not because of the Democrats, but because his own party was constantly trying to set up tripwires for him. Exactly. So, as I said, there is a very strong faction now um, within the Republican Party that is anti-establishment. Mm-hmm. These are all basically signs for you, signs of potential further fragmentation, potentially leading to, I don't, you know, civil war or something else like it. So I think I, I think what I would love to do is explore with you later the ways we can avert kind of societal collapse and war. But before we get there, I do want to understand, like, what do you think is at, at stake? Because it sounds, I think from from reading your book, you say we are at a state of pre-crisis. What could crisis look like? Well, in fact, uh, now we are uh, clearly in crisis. I think it has become very clear that uh, the summer there of riots during the 2020 and especially uh, the storming of the Capitol in January of 2021, those are clear signs that the crisis uh, have begun, all right? So now we still have uh, options, and we, we can talk about that, because there still um, is a possibility of both relatively benign way of living the crisis, and also, unfortunately, there is a very real possibility of things like civil war 
or uh, some kind of a uh, fragmentation of United States into two or more pieces. Uh, may none of those dire outcomes has a huge probability, but those probabilities are not zero. Before we even go to the extremes, <laughs> at the edges of the bell curve, we have the option instead of, of total collapse fragmentation. Uh, this is the, the David French worst case scenario. But on the other side, you say that there is maybe a way out, an easier landing, and we will talk about what's required for that in a second. That's our um, our golden path. But what's the? But you said those are the least likely options to get both of them. So what's what's in the the center of the bell curve? Where are we? Where are we likely to be going if it's not total collapse or uh, an easy landing? Okay, uh, so. Um... Uh, when we talked last, uh, we have got gathered 100 cases in our crisis DB, and we've been busy. So now we are approaching 200 cases. We can do statistics. We can see what happened. How did past societies exit those crises? And there we see a distribution. Indeed, the outright collapse uh, is uh, not very common. It's maybe 20% of cases when you have, what do, what do I mean by collapse? Uh, it's, first of all, very drastic uh, decrease in the population, right? Uh, in some of our cases, the societies lose uh, more than half of their members. It's, um, it's a long, uh, lingering civil war, some, in some cases lasting uh, more than 100 years. So essentially, you have the, the completely fragmented, politically fragmented landscape, and there is not, no new state arising from that uh, landscape. And also think about that the elites are the most vulnerable during those periods. And that's um, when the elites' heads ha end up on pikes. Yeah, exactly. They has end up, well, guillotined or, uh, you know, or... Uh, There's many imaginative ways to take care of their heads. So, uh, so what, we, what we've done uh, um, is scored the outcomes by a, uh, on, a scale, on a scale of variables from 0 to 13, just counting how many of the dire consequences are. In most cases, I actually have uh, half of those consequences, right? So um, the most common outcome is, um, uh, is a huge outpouring of human misery. It's only in 10 or 15 <laughs> cases. Yes, yes, I'm sorry to say that, but that's what the data say, right? It's uh, a collapse. It's just, uh, and th th that's the, the, the term that you've, the scientific term that you've dubbed it. It's a huge outpouring of human misery. Yes, <laughs> uh, and we can, yes. So, but uh, the hope is that in 10, 15% of cases, uh, there is uh, really no bloodshed. The elites pull together and cooperate with population. So this is what happened let's say, during the uh, progressive uh, and New Deal eras in the United States, during the Chartist period, uh, which is middle of the 19th century in the British Empire. British Empire was the only large European state that escaped revolutions of 1848, all right? So they did, they, uh, did something right. Uh, so uh, we uh, can take hope by looking at um, those uh, positive examples. But keep in mind that they're pretty, pretty rare. That's the problem. Yeah, I, I want to hear uh, I want to hear a, a little bit about the 1848 escape in Britain because my assumption is that they were, in a sense, ahead of the curve because of their 
they, they had an early embrace of a nation state model. And in a way, they've anticipated a lot of the revolutionary forces in a way that was already pre-incorporated into their their ruling class, right? The, 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 the revolutionary urges in uh, 19th century Britain were very were already different. Plus, <laughs> some of the more revolutionary forces ended up uh, extricating and migrating to the United States. Um, we can talk about that if you because my story is somewhat different. And yeah, I'm, I'm, happy, I'm happy to talk about it in more detail. I would love to hear that. So, so let, let, let's create a, a small bubble for that. I want to hear your story, and then and then I want to ask you about um, an outpouring of huge uh, human misery. Yeah, I want to I want to understand what the misery is, yes. and then after that, let's definitely go into uh, examples of extrication because I do want to I do want to make sure right. we, we we spend time on that. Okay. So just just to tell me about Britain first. <laughs> okay, so Britain did not escape lightly because of the Industrial Revolution. For the first uh, century of Industrial Revolution, roughly speaking from 1750 to 1850, <clears throat> as the economy was growing quite um, rapidly at unprecedented before that time uh, rates, the conditions of working people were steadily getting worse. Their real wages uh, stagnated and even declined, their heights declined, and there was a huge feeling that we are being left behind. The Dickensian aspect of it all. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dickens was precisely writing at that time. So that took out that in a variety of um, uh, worker uh, disturbances, the worst one was the so-called Peterloo Massacre, uh, which mm. happened uh, in Manchester when several dozen of people were killed because the uh, British cavalry rode into a crowd of workers and started uh, killing them with sabers. And, but it was not the only isolated uh, occurrence. And so this um, uh, shocked some segments of the elite and also um, many of the elites coming from the working class. And there was the Chartist movement uh, that proposed a charter, a charter that would essentially uh, rebalance the social system in uh, UK. Now, UK was a little bit lucky because they had an empire. And as you remember, the two driving forces of, uh, of this uh, crisis are popular, popular immigration, and you can relieve it by essentially um, emigrating part of the, sometimes forcefully emigrating, part of the uh, working classes uh, away from England. That way you diminish the supply of labor and allow the wages to go up. And that's what happened. Uh, but secondly, there was a huge problem with elite overproduction, too many, again, elite wannabes, and they also were shipped to positions in the British Empire. That helped to uh, flatten the curve, so to speak. That gave time to for, for the elites to finally work out... Release the, some of the pressure. Release some of the pressure. It did not re remove the problem because the uh, wealth pump, right, uh, the wealth pump, is essentially this perverse uh, mechanism that pumps wealth from workers to uh, the elites. So if you remember that, as I said, for a century before 1850 or so, the economy grew, but workers' uh, wages did not grow. And all that extra wealth went where, of course, it went to the economic elites. So, uh, so they managed to reverse this problem by stopping the wealth pump. How? First of all, they uh, increased uh, suffrage. They gave uh, the right to vote to the male uh, population. 
Uh, so that increased the democratic institutions quite well, G- gave workers more power so they can they could um, bargain with employers. They abolished the corn laws. So most people on the American side would not know what the corn laws were. The corn laws did not allow any importation of grain, and therefore it allowed the producers of grain within Britain to artificially uh, increase the price. So this is a form, this is one of the forms the wealth pump uh, takes uh, by uh, selling very uh, dear grain and bread and flour and so on to the workers, uh, the elites were pumping wealth out of them. So abolishing the corn laws allowed importation of cheap and plentiful American wheat uh, into England, and that really uh, uh, increased the well-being of people because food became much uh, cheaper. So they, I want to make I, I want to just use this to make a, <laughs> as we do brackets within a bracket. Basically, what they did, they they erased some tariffs that were good for local elite producers and bad for the population overall. Yes. Ironically, you use this to our some of our listeners who view Trump as supporter of the working class. This is the classic mistake of somebody like Trump uh, presenting himself as a populist by imposing tariffs that end up only serving, as tariffs do, the chief producers of a specific industry, while at the same time creating uh, pressures that that inflate the the costs of goods. Well, certainly that's that was the case. Uh with mid-19th century Britain, because bread, of course, bread, of course, was the main, uh, you know, staple for the working class. Also, they um, uh, imposed um, really punishing taxes on the wealthy and landowners. You may remember that by the beginning of the 20th century, this this, this, this sad novels about how the uh, manners, uh, you know, doors of manners, have to sell them because they cannot pay taxes and things like that. Of course, this was a bad thing for them, but it actually rebalanced the social system. It made it, it, made it much less top-heavy. So a variety, and by the way, it took them like several decades to adopt this. It only was by 1880s when we see uh, the worker uh, well-being turn around, the wages started growing together with the economy. And, and by that time, you also have the Fabian movement that, creates much more groundswell support for some kind of democratic social reform in England. Okay, so that that was actually, I, I think, really helpful also just to think of the different parameters that go into this question of social pressure and how the wealth pump expresses itself and how it can be allayed. Right, and how to avert catastrophe knowingly or unknowingly right. by a series of reforms. Okay, next question, Vanessa. Well, shall we get back to the misery? Yeah, 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 yeah. Huge outpouring of misery. Huge so, outpouring of human being misery. Being our most likely scenario. Tell us about it. What does that look like? Yes. Yeah, what does it mean? Well, let's take um, one f- rather extreme example that I discussed at some length in my book, which is the Taiping Rebellion in uh, China during the 1860s. So, of course, uh, this was the bloodiest civil war known to humanity, Uh, Probably 50 million people uh, got killed, Uh, certainly more than 30 million. All right. So that's, uh, uh, you know, I think that qualifies as uh, (laughs) 
a huge amount of human misery when you have tens of millions of people dead. And if right, think, but isn't that the 20%? You said 20% uh, was civil war and and outright collapse versus the vast majority is just misery. So is this, are you okay. are you saying, obviously civil war is miserable, but is there some a difference between non-kind no, of violence? percent collapse means that uh, there is, uh, it's like uh, most population is gone, uh, buildings are crumbling. You know, it's just, think oh, okay. about collapse of the Roman Empire, for example, or uh, collapse of the uh, Maya uh, civilization in Tikal uh, and other cities. So that's that's the, <laughs> the extreme. But uh, the, such extreme collapses uh, seem to be happening uh, less frequently as we go uh, get closer to the present. As human societies have accumulated governance institutions, including democracy, for example, but also uh, things like capitalism, which uh, makes uh, economies more productive. So that seems to have a uh, positive effect on, first of all, the severity of collapses uh, become much less severe. And secondly, the periods after collapse are shorter, this interregna when you have uh, civil wars and things like that. But see, let's still keep in mind that uh, uh, that what's important for us that we've been in a crisis for only three years, but um, typically such crises uh, in the past last uh, between 10 and 20 years and some of them even longer. So it seems like all 2020s are going to be quite uh, turbulent. And the second reason why I think it's turbulent is because none of the structural drivers for um, crisis, for instability, have been addressed yet. Remember, so how would we know that the wealth pump stopped is when the wages of workers will start growing together with GDP per capita, right? This has not happened. In fact, ironically, under Trump, uh, real wages increased a little bit. But uh, under Biden, uh, they decreased primarily because of very stiff uh, um, inflation inflation that we've had over the past uh, two or three years. So this has not changed. There has been no steps taken by the government that saved Joe Biden, who actually semi-promised to increase the the minimum wage. But they have not done it. So in fact, because of inflation, the real minimum wage continues to decline. One of the drivers that you're outlining here is the wages haven't been addressed. What are other like red flags that you're seeing that haven't yet been addressed? Okay, we still continue to overproduce the youth with advanced degrees. The the most dangerous degree uh, is the law degree. If you think about it, uh, Lenin was a lawyer, Castro, uh, Robespierre, also um, uh, Abraham Lincoln was a lawyer. And, uh, and Gandhi was a lawyer. So many of these uh, leaders of the counter elites who led uh, successful, and many of them led unsuccessful, which I didn't mention, uh, movements, they were lawyers. In the United States, um, if you want to get into the political office, there are two major pipeline, pipes leading to that. One of them is either you either inherit wealth or you are a self-made wealthy person, and then you can try to convert that into political office. So think about, again, Donald Trump, but also uh, Michael uh, Bloomberg, or an, an, an unsuccessful example would be Steve Forbes. Um, so people of that kind. But the second uh, pipe is essentially getting the law degree. If you, are, if you don't have wealth and you want to become uh, the president or even just a senator, 
then you go to the law school and get a law degree. Well, um, we have been already overproducing lawyers at the rate of three times as many as their positions uh, for lawyers. And as a result of this, um, I talk about this in the book, we have what's known as a bimodal distribution of uh, new lawyer salaries. So people who come out from law school, maybe a quarter of them get really good salaries, like now approaching $200,000 per year. Those are clearly on the way to into the elites. But the large uh, uh, chunk of the population, more than half, get around 60,000 uh, uh, a year salaries. And considering that many of them, a couple hundred thousand uh, debts that they have to pay off, essentially they are losing ground and they are the ones who are going to be what we call in the theory frustrated elites and some of them will return into counter elite elites who will challenge the existing order. Now this situation is going to get only worse. Of course we all have read about a chat GPT-4 well, um, there is, according to some uh, estimates, uh, ChatGPT-4 already, the existing version, can uh, eliminate 45% of what lawyers do. So if you have now this uh, uh, game of musical chairs where you have three times as many players as chairs, after ChatGPT runs a mock, you'll have six times as many uh, players as chairs. And you can imagine that it's not going to make the situation uh, better. So uh, both on the elite of reduction um, side and on the uh, population side, there is, uh, I don't see yet any signs of trend reversals that would give me optimism uh, mm. to see how we can come out of this. Uh, in America, we have examples of ways we have extricated ourselves from the path of collapse before. I do want to talk about the... I think you call it the era of good feelings too. Um, this kind of New Deal into post World War II era. Um, but I want I want you to talk about it from the perspective of of culture as well, because one of the things that stuck out stood out to us from from the book was that you know it takes a culture of self reform, which means it takes a culture of values, elites holding values that come beyond before their own self interest. And that was really interesting to us. So would you mind telling us a little bit about that history with that lens of the, the cultural values that were in place that allowed the reforms to happen? Sure. It's not even culture. It's, um, it's almost social psychology. So let's think about why do wealth pumps... Well, what is culture if not social psychology? Um, well, uh, culture is actually information that is socially transmitted. Uh, so, uh, it, the, obviously, those are related uh, concepts, but I tend to think about culture in a, as a more long-term thing. So, for example, uh, in the United States, uh, we have inherited much of the cultural genome of uh, the British uh, Empire, so that's why we have a particular uh, kind of democracy. All right, so that is, uh, in the book I talk about, for example, Egypt, which has been governed by military elites over the past. I was going to bring this example, actually. Yes. You bring up how different cultures replicate their source of legitimacy. And so I actually, before you explore this, I want to set this up because this is what I was thinking of culture. And I guess we'll get to the distinction between social psychology in a moment. You take the examples of several countries 
and show how they derive their legitimacy from a specific source and the replication of culture makes them rediscover that source over time. So even as revolutionary movements come and go in those countries, the source of legitimacy obtains, which to me is fascinating because I, I in my ongoing debates with friend of the pod, Batia Rogan Sargon, and with friend of the pod, Misha Thomas, the one takes psychology, the other takes um, economic principles as the guides of of social behavior, I, in contrast, take culture. I see culture as the big driver. And I think I'm almost the anti-Marxist in the sense if Marxism sees culture as the the reflection of elite interests in in an unconscious attempt to replicate them and and, uh, freeze them, I see culture as the thing that constrains and defines and guides the morals and behaviors of elites. So the examples that you bring up, for instance, Egypt as being uh, militocracy and China as being, uh, I guess, a bureaucracy Chrissy, um, (laughs) a, a, a system, a government set up around the administrative state where the the bureaucratic elite holds power. Both of them have, over time, with Egypt, you go all the way back to the Mamluks and with China, obviously, to to the Mandarin, all the way back to the Han Dynasty and the Confucian culture of uh, administrative education. In all of them, you see that in the turmoils of the centuries, they have still maintained the same center of power or the center from which power derives its legitimacy. And that's what I see as culture. Yes, they, they, they reconstitute themselves using what, what worked very well previously, essentially. So let's, let's step back for a second. Remember, we talked about elites are the small proportion of the population who concentrate social power in their hands. Social power comes in four flavors. First of all, it's coercion, military power. Secondly, it's economic power. Third, it's administrative or political. And fourth is ideological. So it happens. Sorry, I missed the second one. Uh, First was coercive. Second, second was e- which? E- economic. Economic. Yes. Then okay. you have uh, political administrative, which is one kind. And finally, ideological. Uh, so um, in uh, Egypt, uh, the governing elites have, uh, uh, have uh, concentrated on the military power. And we can see this uh, in the last century that Egypt has been ruled by one general after another. And during the, after the uh, Egyptian revolution, the, a new uh, kind of um, uh, government, government came into power. This was uh, uh, Muslim Brotherhood. All right. So, which, by the way, uh, this is an ideological basis of power because it's a religious based power. But then uh, generals reasserted themselves very rapidly by overthrowing Morsi, who was the president, and installing uh, al-Sisi, who is, uh, again, a general in power. So you can see that even after very serious perturbation, the previous system reasserted itself. Same thing in China. In China, uh, more than 2,000 years of being governed by a class of scholar magistrates. And so uh, after the um, one century of humiliation, 
uh, when uh, China was really fragmented and was torn apart by outside powers, when it has reasserted itself, it has by now uh, converged back to the same um, uh, mode of operations. And in fact, we can call the present government the Red Dynasty. So the, the Red Dynasty has uh, now become the successor of the Qing Dynasty, and they have acknowledged that because each successful dynasty, the first thing they do after they solidify their uh, power, they um, establish civil exams. No, well, that's one thing. But second, no, but second thing, they uh, appoint a bunch of scholars and they write the definitive history of the previous dynasty. And so this is what uh, forgetting about five or six years ago. Uh, the present government in China has done just that. They are writing the definitive uh, history of the Qing dynasty. And by doing that, they essentially acknowledge themselves as the next uh, dynasty. So this is very, very uh, typical. So this is very what culture uh, means. that It's very um, uh, deep roots of ways that um, different countries uh, converge on governing themselves. And okay, and this is different from the social psychology, as like social psychological aspect that you saw present in the in the U.S. and this new and this kind of New Deal era. Is that right? So, what is that? Yeah, there's no sharp boundaries boundary, but uh, social uh, social uh, psychology that I'm talking about is a faster operating. It operates on the at the level of uh, a um, human generation or so. So let's uh, trace it, uh, uh, what happened in the United States. And also it helps us to understand how uh, the wealth pump pumps get started. So and, al- and also how potentially to get out of it, because one of the conflicts that we reach in thinking about these problems is, well, if it is deeply rooted in culture, how do you get those shifts? Yes, yes, exactly. So um, so the United States um, uh, had experienced a really major civil war in the 1860s. And then there was another revolutionary situation around 19-teens and 1920s. There was uh, huge numbers of race riots. Uh, there was uh, violent labor strikes, uh, uh, anarchist uh, bombings, um, and uh, and also uh, there was the presence of uh, the Bolshevik Russia, which also frightened the elites. Uh, the first Red Scare was in 1921. And so the elites became very frightened. That was one of the moving forces. Uh, they, uh, they were afraid of uh, a Bolshevik revolution essentially happening within the United States. And that was a moving force that um, uh, moved uh, a segment of the more prosocial segment of the elites to actually to try to solve, to solve the problems. They basically said the same thing that Alexander II, this Russian czar, told his uh, nobility back in 1860, right, that we either have um, reform from above or revolution from below. And of course, I don't want to deny agency here. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his uh, team, they were uh, really uh, uh, thinking prosocially, uh, and they were uh, very good, and they were a key element in getting that um, the New Deal finally uh, set in stone. And that, that shut down the uh, wealth pump because it gave power to workers to organize and bargain. It, uh, it, it introduced the minimum wage and kept rising it, by the way. And it imposed uh, huge taxes on the wealthy. So but even by 1960, 
the top rate was 90% on the, you know, the rate of uh, on the top uh, incomes. Well, side note, they did also establish as a result some of the systems that would then become the new wealth pump in the sense that they created such concentration of of industry, more regulation that allows for concentration because more concentration allows for easier control from the federal government. Right, but on the other hand, they uh, they prevented such concentration uh, in the banking and financial sectors, and those um, uh, barriers were dismantled uh, during the uh, 1980s, essentially. Sorry, just to make sure I understand what you're saying. Then, like they, you're saying you're deriving their desire to reform essentially themselves, the the other members of the elite ruling class and and ruling class. Because of what they lived through in the 1920s, it was a re- it was a psychological response to that instability and therefore some sort of recognition that if they don't act, there could be collapse. Is it, are you saying it was like self-conscious? Yes, that's my explanation, because it's not just uh, we remember, we look at uh, many dozens, actually uh, almost 200 uh, cases um, of past crisis. So in the majority of them, the EVs are overthrown, dispossessed, sometimes even exterminated. But in a small minority, they get frightened. And okay, maybe the, a, more, uh, a better word to say that they become, let's uh, adopt the long-term view. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. They get yeah, enlightened. They, get, they, get, they understand that. Yeah, it's a, they understand their enlightened self-interest. So, in order to preserve the capitalist system in the United States, they had to do A, B, C, and D in order to put it back into balance. All right. So back to uh, 1970s. At this point. Um, most of the people who, well, everybody who was a um, part of the decision-making apparatus during the New Deal, they have retired or died. And a new um, uh, generation of elites came that never experienced those things. And they, uh, after the 30 glorious years, so this is 1945 to 1975, it's the, uh, these three decades were, uh, they brought unprecedented, uh, broadly-based well-being to uh, to countries like United States, France, and uh, uh, and so on. So um, uh, the uh, elites became accustomed to it, and they essentially uh, it was it's very easy to think that now things will take care of themselves automatically. Uh, things will continue to be good. Uh, such periods of uh, of integrative phases, as we call them, that's when the elites typically become tempted to reconfigure the economy in their own favor. And that's what essentially happened. So the, uh, the power of workers uh, to organize and bargain was gradually taken away, especially in the, uh, during the 1980s. The minimum wage stopped uh, increasing. So in real terms, it was eroded. And of course, uh, they removed most of the, in a series of steps, they removed uh, the high taxes on the wealthy. So as a result of that, they restarted the wealth pump. And that's when you, I'm sure you've seen this graph which shows how prior to late 1970s, the productivity of American workers grew quite well and wages were growing in parallel. But after 1970s, they departed. The productivity continued to increase, but the wages stagnated and even declined. And so all that extra productivity 
uh, went uh, where it went to the uh, to the economic elites uh, over the uh, 40 years uh, up to 20 teens from 1970s the numbers of uh, decamillionaires increased tenfold population grew 40 percent but the number of decamillionaires increased tenfold and that provided us with a pool of uh, elite aspirants who wanted uh, you know, to to become uh, president or um, some or senator or whatever. So that was one thing. The um, second thing is that because of the general uh, immiseration, and this is real immiseration we are talking about. Um, we have thanks uh, to uh, two economists, uh, Case and Deaton, we know about the deaths of despair, especially affecting. The 60% of Americans, the working class, those are the people who don't have a college degree. So uh, the rates of um, uh, of suicide, uh, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, they have increased. So to the point where we now uh, the overall life expectancy of you know, of Americans uh, has been declining since 2017, even before the uh, before COVID. All right, so uh, so we have uh, overproduction of the wealthy people. We have uh, immiseration and growing discontent amongst the general population. And third thing is that now uh, uh, people more ambitious and active people want to escape this immiseration, right? And that's why many of them, how do you do that? You acquire education. And so that's why you had a huge demand for education, especially for advanced degrees. And that's uh, that also leads to elite production. So all these three factors have been operating. And as we were talking about a few uh, you know, minutes ago, uh, I don't see any uh, signs that they have been, uh, that these trends have stopped. Essentially, in order to stop all these trends, because the root cause is the wealth pump, the first thing we need to do is to uh, stop the wealth pump get the uh, salaries of uh, the median salaries back to grow together uh, with GDP per capita. And that will eventually shut off the overproduction of uh, both uh, too overly wealthy and uh, overly educated. Although that will take uh, many years and, and, and we have to have somehow to survive through those years. So but here's the problem. Talking about Shutting down the wealth pump is one thing, but then envisioning a policy that oversees that is completely different because as we often talk about in this podcast, many of the policies that seem tailor-made to alleviate social inequalities end up either reproducing them intentionally or otherwise, or at least just shifting the inequality sideways and causing a different type of immiseration without really addressing the core uh, causes to the extent that's possible. And I, I don't know, maybe the problem is that the the elites on both right and left aren't really touching the the things that need to be changed. So we are shifting power on on matters that don't really affect the wealth pump. But I don't know, maybe we are just, it's not a matter of will as much as it is a matter of competence. This almost suggests, Saddam, that you don't think it's culture, or rather there's a culture of incompetence (laughs) that gets in the way of a, a culture of values. I mean, that's what I actually don't know. Is it, is it a matter of we're 
we are not having the right conversations. We are not will, willing psychologically to touch the things that we want to. I guess that's in it. that's the social psychology, the smaller scale changes that need to to happen. Or I don't know. I actually I genuinely don't know. By the way, just to to recap the difference for you with social psychology between social psychology and culture is that social psychology is your tactical approach as a society within the constraints of a culture at a certain time. All right. So maybe it is better to, uh, I don't want to make this very hard distinction. So culture with very deep roots uh, versus, uh, let's call it culture that's happening on a much faster time scale. I do like thinking in these terms because you can say that even when you have the swing of politics in the United States throughout its 200 and almost 50 years of existence, it still exists within a framework of ideas and self-understanding that persists throughout history. And that's the culture. So the, the mood I'm going to call it the mood, the social mood might shift, but it is still constrained within that culture. And the 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 rights and wrongs of the mood still need to be somewhat explained within a stricture that precedes the current state of social psychology. Yeah. And that's culture. So, for example, what will happen to the United States after we are, you know, through these times of trouble, it's unlikely that we'll have a general uh, uh, ruling the country because it's not really in the cultural genes, all right? So hopefully it will be some kind of a democracy, um, hopefully better than the one we had uh, before the crisis. But again, uh, the, the historical record shows that typically um, the institutions before crisis uh, are remodeled maybe and reshaped, but they are reused after crisis. So let's get back to Adam's yes. question about will versus competence. Yeah, so to get to Adam's question, you put your finger on, uh, uh, maybe obliquely, uh, on a very serious problem, the problem of unintended consequences. So how do we design uh, policies and institutions that actually produce uh, the desired outcome, which is increase in well-being? rather than undesirable outcomes. And here I argue uh, that what we need, we need the science of history. We need the science of our complex uh, uh, large-scale societies that um, uh, allows us to run um, proposed uh, policies and reforms first as mathematical models and then see whether any unintended consequences emerge. Because human brain, unaided human brain, is really not capable of tracing all the intricate um, feedbacks, nonlinear feedbacks uh, that uh, characterize uh, dynamical systems such as our society. And this is where we need um, a mathematical model. We are not there yet. Our theory, I think our theory is good enough to, uh, to yield quite a number of important insights. And I've been emphasizing one of them that we've got to shut down the wealth pump. But uh, then, um, and it's possible to do because the United States did it in the 1920s, 30s, right? And other countries did it at some other times. But the United States today is very different from the United States of the New Deal. So we cannot just, uh, you know, just uh, copy what they right, did we, then. We, we, need, we need to tailor whatever we do to our current conditions. And that essentially requires building 
mathematical model of how society will respond to various nudges and policies and uh, finding out ahead of time whether there is going to be any <clears throat> unintended effects. Right. But I think even if you have something like that, what's to say that people are going to follow follow it, right? Especially if you have a, a culture of distinct, disintegrating trust with institutions, dis, disbelief in elites, right? What's to say that you would get like the political will to even follow the teachings or, or findings of some sort of mathematical model? Well, it's not just a mathematical model. It's also analysis of uh, huge, huge amounts of data. But this is, yeah, this is... Oh, yeah, but, but the problem is ultimately, it's fun because your solution to the Hayekian pro- complexity problem is what well, we just need to have better, bigger models through better, bigger, I guess, computers and algorithms. But the ultimately... No, 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 no. We need to have not bigger, but smarter models. Smarter, smarter. Yes, because uh, a model uh, will uh, give you results, uh, different results, depending on what you put into it. We don't know uh, all the ingredients that we need to put in the model. That requires further research and further testing of our theory in, uh, you know, in other empirical uh, situations. So that's what needs to be done. We need to increase our understanding of how societies operate and evolve. Yeah, but I just I keep getting stuck though on the, on this idea of culture for the elites to believe in an enlightened sense of their own of reform over their self-interest. And I think even if they had access to incredibly intelligent information, you still have to create some sort of culture in which they're saying, yes, I will follow this, the the lead of this information and I will pursue something against my own self-interest. Like that's for me the thing I'm getting tripped up on. Well, so the way I see it is that uh, it takes uh, both um, the pro-social segments of the elites. And remember, not uh, people are different. Some people are very um, rational and they only care about number one. But other people um, feel that they want the whole humanity or at least the whole uh, population of the United States to get ahead. But also we need uh, to put pressure on them from below. So I'm not, I'm a scientist, I'm not going to start a social movement, but we need uh, to start grassroots uh, movements that would, uh, would put pressure on our uh, elites uh, to uh, to do the right thing. For talking about creating a movement with either giving culture a nudge or a shift of, as you put it, uh, social psychology within a culture to a place that is more pro-social, the, how do you do this? Is this, a, is this a question of you need a new guru? Um, is this a question of... A pro-social a- counter-elite. Uh, pro-social counter-elite. <laughs> to lead, right. to you, lead the fold. But how do you get that... Um, how does it get a footing within a culture that is becoming increasingly recalcitrant, self-defensive, self-protective, and just selfish, I suppose, um, and can convince them that this movement is truly pro-social and to the Vanessa's point that will also be effective in a time where people are incredibly uh, mistrustful? Is it ultimately a matter of charisma because the trust needs to come before the this new idealized uh, pro-social elite actually has a chance to make any difference. So trust has to come from somewhere, which I, I can't think of anything but a charismatic leader, which is not the best, the best 
ideal to follow, right? Because <laughs> the charismatic leader could lead you astray, or maybe if you're lucky, it could be it could make the change that you want. But that that's we were thinking about the our conversation with Tom Holland and Tomer Persico regarding why Christianity was so revolutionary. It's because, per, according to them, it instilled the symbol of an elite disarming itself. It created the idea that self-sacrifice is the noblest virtue, is the closest you can be as a human to the divine. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, but that ultimately comes back to a charismatic narrative, right? It's the it's that story that was so powerful that made the difference. It's not that that Christianity proved itself. I guess you can argue that it proved itself, quote unquote, to people by by its spread. By but the original reason that it spread wasn't because there was any empirical proof that it, w- it creates better, more thriving societies. But the idea spread because of its charismatic appeal. So that's that's ultimately what you need in order to see a pro-social resurgence, isn't it? Here I would like to disagree with you somewhat. So first of all, Christianity was only part of the actual age uh, religions. Buddhism um, and uh, a few other religions, they have also had a very uh, significant pro-social effects on the elites by constraining them to to be good and to do good. And secondly... Uh, it's what we call in cultural evolution, you call it the selection by consequences. Now, uh, it turned out that uh, societies that adopted those actual age creeds, they became more successful than others because they, uh, they, one of the reasons is because the, their uh, rulers uh, behaved in more prosocial ways than rulers without such. It's, everything is relative here. All right. But, right, but the adoption had to precede that. Uh, n- no, uh, because other societies observe successful societies and start mimicking mm. their, mm. Um, uh, their... For example, I'll give you a good example. Uh, monogamy. All right, so uh, monogamy, uh, we now have good research that shows that monogamous societies are much more stable and, uh, than, um, than polygamous uh, societies. They have less crime. Uh, so there is a whole bunch of different outcomes that uh, that uh, you can observe. And so this is what we saw, uh, that for formerly polygamous societies like Turkey, for example, or Japan, they have adopted the law that only one man, one wife. And uh, why did they do it? Because they were imitating successful uh, societies. But anyway, you got a little bit sidetracked. Uh, uh, so getting back... Um, on what can be done. I agree with you. I also have, um, I don't like necessarily relying on one individual. So, uh, and I don't want to be a seer uh, either or prophet right. or anything of that. <laughs> right. and, and we know that, uh, uh, that good outcomes are achieved by a large numbers of people cooperating together. So cooperation is the key. And to do that, uh, this is why I uh, think that we need both uh, the movements from below uh, and also uh, pro-social counter-elites. So not all counter-elites who want to challenge the existing order necessarily have to adopt uh, violent uh, means. So we need some pro-social counter-elites who will perhaps engineer a peaceful Revolution. I'll start recruiting my lawyer friends. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, lawyers are uh, unfortunately not the best pro-social people. 
uh, economists are even worse, by the way. Anyway, uh, uh, there, there are actual studies that show that uh, economists, when, they, when you play uh, public goods games, they always defect. Uh, or ninety percent of them defect. Uh, okay, what we need? Well, they take their own uh, theory of rationality <laughs> too seriously. Uh, yeah. So what we need? We need actually what we need? We need a ministry of social health, right? We have the uh, uh, the uh, secretary of health, right? We have um, uh, uh, ecolo- ecological organizations, right? Environmental protection agency. Now we need an agency that would be integrating uh, research and uh, data collection and ideas and different types of uh, specialists uh, in one place to uh, uh, to uh, pr- to propose and promote uh, uh, good uh, policies and uh, reforms. And I know I'm here. I'm, I'm sitting here in the United States. And in the United States, the majority of people think that the government is the source of evil. And here I am proposing another government agency. <laughs> right. I, I, I was thinking to myself, I am not the most libertarian uh, specimen. But hearing the words uh, Ministry of Social Health does give me chills. I, I know. I know. Uh, we certainly don't want a Ministry of Truth. That's, that's for no, sure. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm proposing this with a little tongue-in-cheek, you know. I No, no, I understand. I understand. But you, 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 you were also joking last time, or half-joking, and you, you mentioned it earlier, about having this centralized authority for observing those um, check mark points in in the future to ensure that we are on path for stability. Uh, I, I I remember we mangled it into something like the the Federal Reserve for cloud dynamics or or, or historical foresight and and social stability. But again, to Vanessa's point, and I think this is where the tension is, especially given as you pointed out yourself with American culture is an implementation, even if we see that you have solved the Hayekian problem and we can be at a point where we have enough information and smart enough models in order to project accurately the risks and and expect the unexpected consequences, it's still a long way to go to to sell that in, in a way that doesn't in itself creates a reaction, violent reaction and public mistrust, but also B, create a whole new institution that is just waiting to be abused and and re-implemented in an unintended way. Create a, an entire system that is just, well, we are now the new authority on what's good for society. And all it takes is three generations of administrators being replaced where you start doubting whether or not the the interests, the fundamental interests of the institution are truly preserved. And there is a number of pitfalls. I I agree with you completely. (laughs) So realistically, my um, uh, hopeful expectation is that because this uh, period, this end times come roughly every couple um, hundred years or so, right? I think that we'll be ready for the next one, right? (laughs) Um, uh, So, but we have to lay the foundations now. Um, yeah. And uh, exactly what form it will take, it is uh, very difficult uh, to say. But uh, the very first thing uh, that we need, we need to understand what are the deep roots of our problems of today. It's not uh, uh, Joe Biden or uh, Trump or right. these uh, that individuals. No, the, uh, the deep roots are 
the, the structural trends that have been develop, developing over the past 50 years. The system it will take quite, um, you know, quite a big effort uh, to reverse it because that's what we see in uh, positive outcomes. It takes uh, often several decades to, uh, to get yeah. things accomplished. And so that's what, it's probably too late for this uh, crisis for us, all right? <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but hopefully you learn. <laughs> but we hopefully learn. Right. Right. I, and I right. think that's why we love talking to you because one of our many mottos is everything is broken. And you take this point seriously. You are not just throwing it at a topic du jour and, and shows this is the apotheosis of the corruption on the left or the corruption on the right. You are trying to understand the, as you said, the inertial problems underlying it and, and why, why it's not just a matter of we woke up one day to uh, an experience of a worse world, but things have been set in place and in motion that may have started well and are now by their own inertia moving either off the rails or, or into the, you know, in the direction that they were always intended for, but we couldn't have foreseen. So my last question before we go in um, to the extent that the question will even make sense, but do you see your project more akin to Harry Seldon or Leto II? Uh, neither, neither. Okay, Leto II, just one god emperor, you know. That's uh, definitely not the way to No, that's, to that's what I said. Not, not him himself, not you as a person, but the project. Do you see the yeah. project of, right. of creating um, a model projected to the future and then trying to steer... America and maybe the world, and we didn't actually get to talk about the world, but to but the world on a better path. Do you see and take it as as you will? I, I'll, I'll add my own afterthoughts on this uh, extra nerdy question later on. But I, I do wonder if you th- see yourself more in in the the Seldeny approach or no, the neither, neither. So neither. both, so t- both so of those are fictional uh, characters. And in real life, prog- progress is accomplished by cooperation of many people, not a single individual, all right? And so what we need is to get organized and uh, both advance our science and then learn how to use the uh, science uh, to, uh, to make uh, our societies work better. After all, when you build a bridge, you don't just sit there and imagine how to do it. You call an engineer and architect and so on and so forth. So we need to do the same thing uh, to fix our societies. I will. I, I have to go, but I, I, I'll, I'll one day try to catch you to uh, expand my why I do think you're more Selden than Leto. But we will <laughs> to be continued. Yeah. Every time we talk with you, Peter, we always want to talk about so much more. So, but thank you for for your time, and maybe maybe we'll do it again. Uh, well, <laughs> we'll I just enjoy, keep the I, conversation going. I enjoyed the conversation very much. <laughs> thank you for this. Your- was awesome. Thank you, and yes, um, hopefully we'll do it again. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcast. If you like us and want us to keep doing this, uh, please consider giving us five-star review on Apple Podcasts or uh, just share us with your friends and enemies. Until next time, stay sane.